Marketing is about value. This is a very complicated world. It's a very noisy world. And we're not going to get a chance to get people to remember much about us. No company is. And so we have to be really clear on what we want them to know about us. Oh, I'm so hungover today. What happened? Oh, yeah, you were the pub quiz. Went to pub quiz, yeah. Smashed it, came um, second. Yeah, that's good. I'm so mm-hmm. bad at pub quizzes. I've done a few. I mean, if... If it was up to me, if Lizzie wasn't there and it was just me, I would have easily come last. She knows <laughs> everything. I don't know anything. <laughs> I was doing beatboxing while you were away. That's nice. <laughs> okay, well, Michael's in the lobby, so. Hey, hey. Shall I let him in? Time to wake him up. Nice to meet you, Michael. Yeah, nice to meet you, man. Nice to meet you guys, too. Been uh, following the podcast a bit. Haven't uh, uh, listened to a full episode because my attention span is a bit. Uh... <laughs> I'm not a podcast person, but yeah, bits and pieces of um, yeah, followed the podcast. Ah, nice. Well, if we're converting, if we're converting you to what podcasting is, uh, that's nice. I'll take that as a win. That's good. You were, um, you were one of the people that was tagged in one of the posts that I did on LinkedIn two, three weeks ago. And um, we've seen your your name around a few times in the past, but we actually never spoke. So this is a first uh, first time. Um, but yeah, thank you for whoever suggested uh, Michael to jump in. It's uh, it's uh, it's happening. So yeah. It's uh, it's working. My friend, Dracatos, uh, Mister SEO, yeah. Shout out to him. Um, so yeah, no, that's great. And also, as a segue to this, I should mention because this is quite new. But on Spotify, for those who listen on Spotify, I actually put a question that you can answer as a Q and A for every episode directly on Spotify that we will see uh, that we could use for future episodes. And also um, there is a poll uh, option. So for every episode, we'll put a little question when you listen to this. If you're on Spotify, as you're listening, you can interact with the the content and we'll we'll see it. Spotify really pushing for the engagement that you can't get through Apple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the stuff that um, I was trying to do through a WhatsApp group before, they're kind of trying to take that on board and uh, build some more interaction with it, which is which is quite cool. Oh, very cool. But anyways, um, Michael, do you do you uh, do you mind giving us a elevator pitch of who you are and uh what you do what you did and what you do in a, in a few in a couple of minutes that would be great just in, as an intro but, uh, i've been in uh, growth marketing for the past uh, seven years i have a marketing background from university so i come from the uh, not so like the more marketing fundamental side uh, as a background i worked with uh, Oren greenberg at curve uh, for three and a half years that was pretty much the start of my career um, I was remote back in Greece before remote was a thing. Nice. And uh, that was a very uh, a huge shortcut for me getting into growth and uh, having access to uh, big clients. Um, because you know, without Orange Network and uh, uh, you know professional status, uh, uh, I wouldn't have had access to those things. So that provided me with a huge shortcut and I generally recommend agency side when you're starting out because it's like a portfolio, like you uh, get access to multiple clients at once, you're not yeah. really, uh, it doesn't really matter if you go to a bad client or a bad situation because you have multiple other avenues. So it's kind of a de-risk. Yes. And uh, yeah, after three and a half years there, having seen a lot of different scenarios, uh, scenarios that I liked, scenarios that I didn't like, I felt like I wanted to uh, focus and go client side. Um, 
I went to manual in uh, the DTC space uh, and uh, this was a great step for me because the team there was so good that it was overkill for a DTC website like everyone so switched on there. I came from a, a, a CEO who was in performance marketing. Oh, yeah, you worked with George. George Palace. George, yeah. Was, uh, George yeah, that's good. You know, he was my, um, my uh, boss at Deliveroo. Oh, I I know I knew he was a deliverer, you know, that he managed you amazing. Uh, yeah, so this, uh, let's say, performance and metric data-driven uh, mindset was running through the whole company. It was amazing to see. Um, and then I jumped to Blitz Lemon, which was kind of the opposite situation. Like, the, the product was super differentiated and creative, but the it wasn't a data-driven performance uh, marketing company obviously not saying that that's wrong because they built an amazing brand and mm -hmm. it was retail first but uh, there i had a lot more scope to uh, call the shots and be you know uh, the person in charge of the commercial metrics and uh, all that so combining these two experiences uh, uh, gave me i think uh, quite a uh, 360 let's say makes 360 strong word but you know, I'm not going to count out the group now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, with uh, these two, then the next step at Silverbird is where I guess I get to combine the two experience, like being the person in charge for the growth function and being in a data-driven, performance-oriented environment. And I'm yeah, really excited about Silverbird. It's interesting about Bleach because um, it looks like you were there, like, bang in the middle of the pandemic. And it'd be interesting to know if they saw like mm. an increase because I personally used bleach to bleach my hair in the pandemic. So I'm like, I'm not at work. I can <laughs> I can try dyeing my hair. No performance marketing will ever match the the impact of COVID alone. Like uh, they were they were doing a lot of creative things that uh, were performing, but were not standard performance marketing or hosting. It was before I went. They were hosting. Uh, uh, bleach parties with celebrities and all that tapping into uh, the founders uh, network and uh, you had uh, uh, Georgia Zagier who's also one of the investors doing her hair live on camera on a zoom link like these, these things were you know uh, creativity at its finest you won't see them on a dashboard yeah, like that yeah, yeah. Google Analytics, but... yeah that's cool it's amazing how brand can just come along and like turn something turn an industry or a product that is you know, people have been bleaching their hair and dyeing their hair for a long time, but then a brand can come and twist it in a certain way that suddenly the brand becomes bigger than the product itself and just it makes the industry cool. I love that kind of thing. Yeah. What was the bleach you used? Which color? I can't remember. I just used I clear. It was white? just straight to bleach. It was just straight bleached, white, white blonde. Oh, man. <laughs> but you never nice. saw me. I, it nice. was, it was, uh, I liked to, I wore a hat and, um, when I was at home, I did it. When I was out in the street, it was fine. But when I was at work, you know, literally getting on a Zoom call and one day your hair is dark like this and the next day it's blonde, obviously everyone's like, oh, he bleached his hair. <laughs> but it's cool. It um, works. I'm jealous, product. man. Did you go bleach before manual or after manual? Because there's a very, like, there's a common theme there about hair loss and then hair bleaching. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel a bit, you know, I feel a bit uh, under attack because I don't have any left. You so don't know I what we're talking about. Hair, but, but I, you know, I know about manual, but I I, uh, I think I'm past the point that you can actually recover the, you know, the, the losses. So, yeah, I feel like there's a bit of a... Which one was first? Manual was first. Manual was yeah, first. Manual. Uh, first you recover your hair loss and then you bleach your hair and then you lose them again. <laughs> <laughs> The only thing that can help you, you know, is you need Jesus. You need a miracle. <laughs> yeah, you just go to start to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> nice one. One of the things that I saw you, you, I think, reshared on your LinkedIn recently, um, there was from someone talking about dark social, the dark funnel versus the light funnels. Um, and obviously, from what you're saying, Bleach, Bleach was more of a brand activation, celebrity type of uh, uh, marketing versus uh, manual, which was very data-driven, very performance-driven. Um, and I thought we'd just spend 
you know, a few minutes talking about that, talking about that concept of that is quite recent. Like I've heard the term uh, dark funnel or dark social um, in in recent month um, or maybe uh, in the last year or so. But uh, I don't think that's something that's uh, very commonly known, what that means and, uh, you know, where this is going in terms of, uh, you know, making the, making the link the, the link with attribution and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you, uh, Michael. Like, tell, tell me what you thought of that and uh, we can go from there. About the dark funnel, I think it's a term that's derived from uh, uh, this new age of marketers that are spoiled thinking that they knew everything. In fact, it's nothing new. Like uh, when you were in uh, the 70s doing a TV ad in the Mad Men era, you wouldn't uh, have attribution on the ad. And uh, all that. Like these were all, it was always the case. You were doing correlations and you knew when things worked. You know, the famous quote about half my advertising uh, cost is wasted. Yes. I just don't know which half. It's kind of true today, like we don't live in the same era. We have the tools to measure uh, a bit more, but uh, uh, there's a, n not everything that counts can be counted. Like that's a, a thing that uh, uh, holds true even to this day. Even when you do a performance marketing campaign and uh, the campaign is uh, smashing it, it's not the campaign you set up on Facebook or Google that did it. It's all the elements that are be, uh, below this layer that uh, enabled you to have this success. And uh, being uh, laser focused into your tools and uh, your dashboards and uh, thinking that this thing works, when you try to apply it in a different context, uh, you get the, the bubble burst in your face and uh, you think, uh, uh, like you get to think why is it not working now because uh, it worked before but the it is not yeah, the same the mix is different yeah so what i what i got to let's say discover between the two experiences is that manual being uh, uh, completely new uh, our performance marketing was branding the, the company like uh, everything in performance marketing we put out had to be brand aligned we had the color palette and uh, uh, things we could and we could not say, and the reason, the reach we achieved with uh, performance marketing because the LTV is such that you can achieve, you can afford high CACs, so you can achieve uh, high reach. This was what was the branding of the company. Like we would do some uh, brand uh, activities on the side, like PR and stuff, but I reckon the majority of what made the uh, uh, brand uh, aware in the, the UK public was performance marketing and then on blitz on the other hand you had the baseline built from all the brand activity over time but performance marketing did work and did uh, provide a big uplift when it was uh, um, uh, when it uh, was uh, live and uh, uh, with increased spend like we would see the correlation between short-term uh, uh, brand activation which was performance marketing and sales so this, these two things kind of started shaping my thinking between the brand and performance. And, you know, having the academic background, you talk about the FMCG world and how the share avoids all these metrics. And, you know, being in a startup and starting out like with uh, VC funding and having to prove you, that uh, you have uh, the uh, metrics in place to be uh, a solid asset going forward, you don't really have the luxury to go after share of voice, like you have mm -hmm. to convert. So you're going to fight with a low share of voice, but you're going to have to go after the segment that's more prime to buy, which the digital platforms are greater. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And do you, Michael, do you think it is possible to, I like what you said about kind of branding through performance marketing. Do you think it's possible to build a brand from performance marketing? So people, it, it everything is optimized to a return, but it's still doing a good job of building a brand. Or do you think you still need to have those big brand plays that you can't necessarily do as a startup? Uh, I mean, depending on your stage, I think uh, align with the, your expectations with what it means to build a brand. Obviously, you're not going to build a Coca-Cola through performance marketing, but building a brand that's uh, well uh, known in your target segment and uh, uh, 
becomes an asset in, uh, let's say, the people's uh, consideration set when choosing someone from uh, your category, I think it's uh, more than uh, uh, feasible. It, it might not be the only way, though, like, but performance marketing, let's say, um, again, a shortcut. But it won't beat, let's say, uh, understanding your target segment, see where else their attention is to, partnering with the right influencers, where the attention is going, stuff like that, maybe doing even offline stuff. But yeah, for most businesses, I'd say Facebook ads are relevant in any case. Yeah. Uh, Google is a bit different because there must uh, there has to be intent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it comes as a as a necessity, when, especially when you're a small startup. You don't really have the option anyway, so you might as well trying to do both. Op for, optimize first for the results to get the the traction that you need on your user side. But you know, it doesn't hurt to build a little bit of the the brand. Were you were, were you measuring? brand metrics when you were doing that manual in some ways like were you doing surveys or awareness type thing just to like prove it or was it just a, uh, an added bonus that you knew was happening and that was fine we had some service done from time mm. to time uh, but uh, the main thing we were tracking is the volume of uh, yeah. brand searches good one uh, and uh, have it over time and uh, this was another thing that uh, was very key at uh, manual like we would do the things we needed to do simplify them a lot and just focus there like uh, when you uh, interact with marketers on twitter on linkedin they're gonna tell you all about these new exciting activities they're doing because you know effectively the date day isn't that <laughs> exciting like you have your playbook you execute it and you can talk about that every day so yeah that's true uh, we we monitored it in the most lean way possible. Like now the brand has evolved. Like it's been uh, close to three years that I've yeah. left or more. Would you say you were like focusing on maybe a couple of channels, like you said, like really leaning on uh, efficiencies where you where you found it, and then maybe doing a bit of testing on the side, or were you trying to grow more than like diversify early uh, in your kind of channel mix? We did test a lot of channels at uh, manual, but uh, no channel testing ever had the, uh, you know, illusion, delusion, let's say, of uh, going away from the duopoly Facebook and Google. Yeah. Like we knew that this would be the 80% and the, the Pareto principle is something that uh, impacts me everywhere. And my life not just marketing. Like we knew that we're testing for the extra 20% and finding some efficiency. Yeah. So. Uh, with, uh, and we'd get quite creative with uh, the channels we were testing, like we'd uh, uh, insert manual into, let's say, medical newsletters doing affiliate deals, for example, uh, had um, uh, dating apps, stuff like that, especially when uh, uh, some Facebook and Instagram outages happened. There were people saying, oh, that serves you right for uh, putting all your eggs in this basket, like, that's that's a nonsensical comment like the attention is there you will have to go there like you're not going to go to less efficient channels just in the name of diversifying and uh, yeah. diminishing yeah yeah i agree i mean performance marketing in general is just a game of fixing problems left right and center so when a problem arises like there's an update and things aren't working you just have to fix it you're never going to be like oh well I'm not going to use Facebook anymore. Like nobody stopped using Facebook after iOS 14, you know, it's just like you have to find a way to fix it. So yeah, I completely agree with that point. But um, it's kind of this question jars with what we we're just talking about, dark funnels and um, potentially Michael, and you said that Bleach wasn't necessarily a performance marketing first brand, but I wonder what you think about um, attribution tools in general. And the reason why I'm asking that is because this morning, Twitter's going crazy with um triple whale has increased its price from like $50 to $1,500 or something crazy. And there seems to be so much, so many people in the D2C space, you know, talking up these products, constantly trying to test something that's going to bring in, that's going to like fix that attribution gap. Have you had any experience with that stuff? Have you used any of those tools? How do you think in general about the constant fight to fix that problem? Controversial take. I really like triple well, but I don't like triple well for the attribution. I like triple well for the operating system. It gives you like knowing the margins and everything, having them. 
but even triple well the way they attribute it's still click based maybe it catches a bit more than facebook after ios 14 but not everything is uh, click attribution and uh, you still get to rely on the uh, uh, causal and the and to be honest, like I'm uh, very much on the keep it simple approach. Like if, if you're not spending uh, 1 million per month, you don't have to do, uh, you don't have to get too sophisticated in attribution. You have your cost per channel. You have your channel attributed conversion. Then you have your blended conversions. You measure that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. It might, might uh, be leaving, let's say, one or two percent of optimizations on the table, but this one of two or two percent is not worth your time and attention when you are when you have this whole business to build and uh, uh, things that will move the needle 20, 30, 100 percent exponential bets that you should be trying. Yeah, 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 I completely get that. I mean, if you're driving one, two, three hundred sales a day and you're missing out four of them it's not really going to make a difference to your business but if you're driving ten thousand a day and you're missing out a couple of thousand that's going to make a big difference so yeah i completely get where you're coming from there it depends on the stage of the company and uh, you know in both cases it makes sense like uh, when you're spending millions and uh, uh, an optimization uh, getting laser focused on your uh, marketing mix modeling and uh, uh, how you uh, shift a budget that could be in the hundreds of thousands then it's a completely sound decision and it's a huge waste if you don't do it on the other hand it's a huge waste of your time and energy to focus on that when you have bigger problems yeah no i agree i think uh one of the people we're talking to right now is a is a guy called frankie akil i think his name is uh yeah he's building and mixed modeling tool at the moment getting some beta brands beta testers and uh, we'll game on we'll game on the podcast we'll do a specific attribution uh, um, focused episode with them i think that would be very useful i'll watch that from start to finish <laughs> that could be the marker of success michael you can just tell us from now on which ones you got to the end of and we'll just optimize for that i actually posted this morning uh, something on my linkedin a, a friend of mine reached out and he was like i actually listened to your podcast and it was good i was like thanks you really <laughs> thanks for that but it's good when you get those messages from people that are hard to please that's great so shout out to rory on that one if we can move on to to silverbird and maybe i haven't used it but i'm assuming there's a big kind of plg product-led growth element to silverbird letting people come in how has it been moving from i guess kind of switching into that world um yeah it was very interesting and uh, i was hesitant to do that at first but then well, the decision was like i want to be uh let's say holistic growth marketer not just be the mm. dtc guy so after three years in DTC, I mm. this challenge uh, what I found in B2B, coming back to B2B because I had it before, what I rediscovered is that when you're doing performance marketing for B2B, there isn't this consensus that there is, exists in DTC. Like in DTC, everyone and their dog know they have to optimize for a, a conversion that's, you know, a purchase or add to cart for if you don't have enough data. In uh, B2B, like I've seen a lot of campaigns run on traffic uh, clicks with the old notion of let's say 2016 <laughs> Google and Facebook that you drive traffic somewhere you get them to convert like they, they don't they haven't really got a memo how the most powerful targeting comes from the conversion event you you target so when I got there I didn't even have uh, let's say the proper tracking to even do that mm. so my first hire uh, as a freelancer uh, uh, to sort out all the tracking in that funnel. Um, product has since stolen most of them, is that good? And uh, making sure that I have the minimum viable things to be able to run performance campaigns. And that was, let's say, the focus in the first three months. I go running uh, ads to a lead generation third-party website, but we weren't running ads to silverbird.com. So 
and spending the, the first three months just fixing this, mm. uh, it uh, it give gave me the insight of how much this uh, optimizing for the right conversion event can make or break the growth engine. So it really put the the funnel there at the heart of the engine. And what's interesting is uh, with a product like Silverberg, which is not aimed at every business, like you have to be in international trade of physical goods, like you have to be transporting food uh, goods uh, internationally to be a viable case for us. Like if a marketing agency comes want to open Silverbird account, it will get rejected. Like we say, it's unfit industry because we're laser focused on that segment. So there's also the element of making sure that you get the volume of conversions, but you also get a high relevance of those. So what we did at some point was before the conversion events fire, a conversion event fired, we had to pre-qualify them to say that if you if you give us info about your business and you're not a fit, you don't get to fire a conversion mm-hmm. event. So it yeah. was a way to strengthen strengthen the signal even um, while uh, reducing the the volume of it. So and then moving on from that, we also saw that. Uh, it was good uh, to bring the relevant applications, but then closing them, it still uh, needed uh, sales involvement. And uh, from that, at some point, I realized that this is now called product led with sales assist. There's a buzzword for <laughs> with everything, but yeah, that's what we do. And how does that uh, come into play? So the so the, the the marketing qualifies users, brings them in. The, I guess the growth team take with the PLG stuff, make sure the user using the platform and then that they kind of hand off to the sales team to do that final sales piece? It uh, really, I guess, depends on the type of client. If it's a client that are going to complete the application on their own and they go through to a completed application and we have our teams from compliance checking whether they're a viable uh, customer because there's, you know, it's fintech, there's legal stuff in the mix, etc. Uh, if uh, they uh, begin the application and uh, they don't go through the end and uh, we have, it is a qualified uh, application for us, then it's assigned to a salesperson and uh, they get to work the lead. And uh, like I said, these are these are examples of things that you have to think of to uh, really move the needle in terms of your metrics. Like, it wasn't attribution that got us there. It's, we, we saw that there was intervention needed. We applied it, then, uh, you know, CAC went down by 40%. That, that wouldn't have happened if I was even more sophisticated in attribution. Interesting. Yeah, I love that. I think I, I especially like the thing about pre-qualification before you fire the conversion event, because I'm sure I was reading a, a post or something about doing that the other day, how it's difficult to... Obviously, you can't do it for every business, but it's difficult to pre-qualify before you move someone into a custom audience. And these days, marketers are kind of have got a bit lazy, and they they have their conversion events in place, and they don't really do anything with first-party data. But to what you're saying, if if you can pre-qualify with some kind of form or questionnaire before you fire the event, that does one job of that. But also, I think people need to kind of go back. There's a common theme with lots of the discussions we have that is about like doing things how you actually did them like 5, 10, 15 years ago now because of all the every all the hurdles that we have to overcome. And one way of doing that is that you just get really laser focused on your first party data. So when people come in, you make sure you go through that list and you qualify them yourself before you feed that back into the system for like your lookalikes and your retargeting and all that and all Mm. offline customer uploads and that kind of stuff um so i don't think people do that enough but it's super interesting yeah we don't do that enough and uh, i think because not enough marketers do it it's like a misuse case still we don't have the education from the platforms but both platforms offer the offline conversions uh, functionality i think Mm. it's if we were digging into their analytics we would see that uh uh, it's uh, used by uh, tiny fraction mm-hmm. of the users and probably the ones that spend the most too like some sort of uh, a very let's say sophisticated uh, performance marketing uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. but not for the ones who are starting out so again it comes down to what's the point where you need it but mm-hmm. i think it's definitely something that will see increased usage over time 
I think there is a link link to that. There is um there's still a a big uh shift that needs to happen in B2B where the marketing teams are often measured on MQLs, qualified leads, as opposed to what probably should be the KPIs always, which is pipeline created. Like going further mm. away from, like going further down the, the funnel, which goes back to what we're saying about pre-qualifying the leads. Because if you, as a marketer, incentivize for volume, you're going to optimize towards that. It, always, it goes back to like, how do how, how, how success is measured for your job, right? If your boss is telling you, I need uh, as many MQLs as possible, you're going to take other decisions to do that. Um but if you're optimizing towards the yeah, pipeline created revenue, whatever you call it, um, you're not going to care too much about your MQLs. You're going to do as much as you can to pre-qualify and, uh, and, and, and yeah, do things like that too. It really depends on uh, what type of uh, uh, B2B company you are and uh, what the volume is. Like if you're an, an ABM play, I can imagine with the volume being low that MQL being the right targeting because the sales cycle are uh, longer and uh, you need to have a, a more short term. But in my case at Silverbird, I, I'm just looking at onboarded customers and uh, customer acquisition cost growing this to growing the one decreasing the other, keeping the, the other uh, growing slower than the volume. Uh, it It doesn't make uh, sense to do it differently because you that's the business you're building like and even even going a layer beyond that you also have to uh, look at the, your LPV metrics and your uh, your payback because it's one thing to onboard a uh, hundred small companies that uh, might have some good use of the account but they're not gonna pay back and it's an, mm. another thing so sometimes you even it might even be beneficial to increase your CAC going after a segment that's more lucrative that is going to... So that's... Uh, then you get into this argument with other marketers and uh, they try to imply that when you say these things, it's like saying CAC doesn't matter. No, it 100% does matter, but there are nuances to these metrics and these metrics aren't isolated on their own. Like CAC has to go together with LTV, uh, conversion rate goes together with traffic. There's all these sorts of nuances and uh, understanding them takes a while like it's mm. not uh, it's not uh, obvious right yeah, you need to identify the levers to pull right if you can just increase across the board 10 percent of each of these small metrics it all adds up it all adds up to a lot and the next blog post i'm writing is mm. just to add to that uh, i'm saying it's like the supply and demand uh, uh, curve where uh, if you go for a nominal, uh, if you're I, I, uh, incentivized by a nominal increase in conversion rate, and that's, let's say, your quarterly bonus, the easiest thing to do is just decrease the traffic coming in. <laughs> so it's a false incentive. But what what uh, a conversion rate increase is one that when your uh, CRO is such on the website that enables you to increase your traffic, maybe the nominal uh, conversion rate that you will see uh, is lower, but the fact that it is lower for uh, double the traffic means it was actually a better conversion rate than the previous month, which had half the traffic with yeah. a 10% higher conversion rate. So these nuances are really fascinating. Yeah, there's definitely a balancing act uh, with all that stuff. I remember I, I saw that post the other day, Michael, I thought it was really cool. It took me a few to I had to read it and I was like, do I understand? And I was like, yeah, okay, that, that, that makes complete sense. Dial back the traffic. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So with a, with a product like Silverbird, how, and it kind of feeds into what we're talking about, the MQLs and going into product and making sure the user stays in the product. How much does retention come into play in terms of how much do you focus on retention or with a product like Silverbird? Is it that once a customer comes in, they go through all the hurdles to all the steps to become a user they are kind of naturally retained to a certain extent it it really depends on uh, the uh, on the customer profile there are businesses that uh, get silverbird as an extra account so we don't have a high share of their transaction there are businesses that uh, get silverbird because 
uh, they're in a really in a big need state and we're unblocking their banking. This become like 100% suburban mm -hmm. customers. We, uh, it's not easy to identify, like this would be like asking how desperate <laughs> are you for a bank account. But there are, let's say, pointers where like, uh, I don't want to go into too much yeah, detail yeah. because uh, uh, maybe competitors are listening, but there are attributes in a, uh, in a business in a business application that uh, let us know uh, whether the customer is uh, likely to be a, a big one for us. Uh, up to this point, we haven't got super sophisticated into uh, getting a, a different, um, uh, let's say, treatment for those customers. But this is the next phase of growth. And what we envision is like, this shall, shall enable us to increase the CAC uh, because of the LTV increase. But yeah, last year was all about growth, 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 growing the user base six times. Yeah. So we now have to keep that uh, put on the gas, but also look at the underlying uh, efficiency. Very cool. That's really cool. Six times. Just just six times. <laughs> <laughs> now we're done. I wanted to talk about career in growth and marketing, career progression, and how did you see your career so far? And then we can move into um, talking a little bit about the concept of the T-shaped marketer. And I think you've got a pretty uh, interesting idea on that too. But um, yeah, let's, let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. I mean, I think uh, customers' interests is a mindset, uh, even if you do the uh, smallest uh, marketing tasks. So uh, for new up-and-coming marketers, I would say this is the first thing to... Uh, really uh, embrace. Uh, I had uh, I had uh, such influences by uh, my parents' uh, store had a fruit and vegetable store back in uh, uh, in the island in Greece. So I knew from a very young age that it's all about your customer. You have to treat them a certain way. You you have to keep them coming back. They're, like they're not really buying your fruit and vegetable, buying your relationship. So I had, let's say, these things ingrained in my mind, obviously, not as articulate as now. Uh, in terms of uh, career, like you're likely going to start with uh, something that's uh, very tactical, uh, administrative, uh, hands-on. And uh, this is uh, something, again, to embrace. Like You're not going to jump into strategy and calling uh, major shots. You have to really do the work there, even if the work seems disconnected with what the bottom line is uh, you, you if you're under a good leader you're probably being tasked with that for a reason uh, the more you grow your career i think you have to be mindful of how much what you're doing is impacting the bottom line which is what brings you uh, you know what makes you critical inside the business what makes you indispensable uh, what makes the business afraid of losing you. Uh, and in terms of, let's say, specialist and uh, versus generalist, I think you, becoming a specialist and broadening it up is probably the best way because you are, like, if you specialize in, let's say, Google Ads back in the day, like, like I did, you earn the trust of the people that you can handle this thing. You... Uh, build upon it, then you become a trustworthy person, a trustworthy executive in, or, in an organization that allows you to start venturing into other things. Mm. So yeah, I started from PPC, became a T-shaped marketing marketer doing all the content marketing, SEO, paid social, uh, some areas still untouched, but I know how, I know about them, how, even if I haven't done them myself. And what I'm seeing for the next stage is what I was already observing, but uh, put two words by Joanna Lord of Reforge, which is also a professional influence to me, shout out to her. It's like the new T-shaped marketer, uh, like when it says T-shaped CMO, T-shaped executive, 
you have some visibility in all areas of the business, like product, uh, operations, finance, uh, and your team, your, what you're double down on is marketing on its own, not an area of marketing. And uh, I think, obviously, you know, I'm not there yet, but uh, uh, getting to head up marketing, you have to interact with finance, you have to interact with operations, you have to interact with product. It kind of happens on its own, and when you're proactive about it, it's, and especially with finance, you get to see, and we have this historically, let's say, adversarial uh, position with finance, but when in fact it should, they should be our best mm -hmm. friend. This is controversial because that's how we get the buying to spend more. It has to be uh, down to the, um, uh, let's say, to the bottom line, why you get more spend and uh, more buying for your activities. And at the end of the day, what even the old age marketers would say, when you build a brand, you build a commercial asset, something that you're going to put into your balance sheet. So, uh, yeah. yeah, calling for another end of this point. <laughs> I love that concept, touch. I never thought of it like that before. So you're a T-shaped marketer or any discipline, T-shaped, whatever. And then as you... I guess climb up the ranks or whatever that T kind of zooms out and you just become a T-shaped executive with your T going down into marketing. I love that concept. It's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Ready to join. I'm not going to take that, but yeah. It's stuck with me the first time. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah, it resonates a lot. I think um, across um, the, all the teams that a company can have, the thing that I, and I'm also learning on that on that front. But the thing that I'll, kind of strikes strikes me every time is trying to like over communicate on all the department that kind of everything is marketing. And if you start talking to finance, to ops, to like whatever the teams, they realize that most of the time it's just that they have they have just no idea of their jobs impacting either the customer or what marketing is uh, in general, like the, the representation of what the brand is outside uh, is impacted by some of the things that they will be doing. And uh, so that's one side. And the other side is also just explaining why we would do something specific, like a campaign or whatever. Like there's a, there's a lot of... Um, just over communicating all the time becoming the i hate that term you know when they call like i think at linkedin they've got like evangelists you know <laughs> uh i hate that term but i, I think i prefer cheerleader uh, becoming like the biggest <laughs> cheerleader of the the company so you, the, the, just the guy who never shuts up on on slack <laughs> but um i think it starts with that in university, I had a professor, late George Avlonitis, the guru of uh, marketing in Greece, and he said that, that he would uh, call us to, like, when you get out of uh, uh, the university and you go into uh, your careers, you have to become missionaries of marketing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's very cool. If uh, if if you if you were to start um, this year your career. Where would you? What would? What would be your speciality? Where would you start? I think I go agency side again, and uh, this time do Facebook ads, not Google ads. I think uh, Google has taken a mm. lot of the, uh, a lot of the things out of uh, uh, the marketers' hands. Uh, so yeah, I'd uh, go do that and uh, uh, have a close, uh, let's say. Uh, coordination between uh, the website, uh, the creative and uh, the performance. Uh, and I think that would be the shortcut mm. I'd go after at this point. Yeah, I like that. What would you do, yeah? Hmm. Very, I think similar answer. I would uh, go back agency side as well uh, to begin with. I'll probably pick TikTok as a... As the first channel, I would I would lean towards to TikTok plus creator slash influencer combined, like really nailing that process. 
and becoming the um, becoming the guy in the team or in the agency that just nails the end-to-end you know relationship of like filtering the influences we need do the communication all the way to like the payment the contract and then running the spark ads on tiktok like if you if you like nail the that kind of uh yeah a to z process on on tiktok i think you can go today you can go very far because there's there, there are going to be million of startups and founders that would be looking for that one particular thing whether it's on dtc or uh, apps you know fintech for example that works as well what about you jake um yeah i'm gonna follow you guys trend i think definitely start agency um i started agency as well and then went client side i think when you start agency you kind of get to a point where you're like now i want to have that deeper visibility of what goes on that I, that isn't in my remit of the, the that kind of yeah. agency relationship and also you kind of feel like when you're if you do something really well agency side then the person your agency contact is getting all the credit internally on their side and you're like i want some of that credit you don't get to, you, don't, you don't get some of that internal internal credit but mm-hmm. i think i would i would specifically go um for an agency so hex where i work now we focus on startups so we're we're a growth agent a product and growth agency for startups and i think the interesting thing about doing an, an agency that works with startups so you get that kind of rich um visibility across a business that i said that you don't necessarily get a, a bigger agency but without the risk of being yeah. in-house at a startup and potentially losing your job in six months time so i think that's i think that's quite nice you can see the whole end-to-end process and when you're working with startups exactly i think it's funny that we all said starting at an agency i think the the thing that was true for me at least is because you get exposed to potentially different industries different verticals even if you're just running one portion of one thing and you don't get the credit because you're, like you said, Jake, you're like a, a cog in the in the agency, you get to see the the ins the, the ins and out of different businesses and the ones that work better than others, mm-hmm. and that might al- allow you to pick better when you go client side. You're like, okay, this vertical work, it, like they're smashing it. I want, I want to do that. Um, I think that helps for that reason as well. Because if you start client side you, and it's your first job, you have no idea, you know, like you probably don't really know that much about the business side of things, the finance side, like we said, the the ops, the margins, you might do, try and do stuff, but yeah, you might not survive, but also it might just not never be something meaningful because you yeah. just don't have enough information. So um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Plus, agency side, you get agency perks like free snacks and stuff that you don't necessarily get, or I haven't necessarily yeah. had so much when I've been internal. <laughs> <laughs> Ping pong tables and shit yeah. like that. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff that moves the needle. I mean, for me, starting a, in an agency meant that I would uh, get my laptop and uh, work at a local coffee shop and uh, here's Greece. So every environment yeah. is different. When I did that in 2016, no one would do that. Like uh, you were a dork for going uh, in a coffee shop with your laptop. <laughs> yeah, now you can't get a seat in a coffee shop because everybody's sitting in there with their laptop. Well, maybe we should talk about that a, a little bit to, to kind of round up because we're coming up to the hour. Everyone's been working for home, at least in the UK, for the last two two years now, I guess. Maybe a bit more, maybe almost coming up to three. Um, and yeah. now the discussion is turning to does that work should it should should we shift back to like three four days back in the office i guess michael you would say no because that is just historically not been what what you do um but just keen to get you guys thoughts on the future of work and where it might go from here if if you consider like five years ago if someone said in five years time everybody effectively will be working from home you wouldn't believe it but it took such a big catalyst like covid to like kick that off i wonder where the future is going to be Mm. Um, I think uh, for me, surprisingly, I prefer uh, going to the office. Like I, I, pre- I prefer having it in the week. So I think hybrid is the way to go. I think it's hard to build a company when you're completely mm. remote. It's doable, and we have examples that uh, uh, show it. But I think 
a lot of things get sped up with in-person communication, so impromptu uh, con conversations and uh, the visibility on uh, other departments. I think there is some merit to it. Uh, I think with uh, the good thing for employees is that the competition for talent is fierce, so it means that no one can really force you to go five days now, which is uh, mm -hmm. very empowering. And uh, I do think that, you know, we kind of knew before when we were all going to the office, just sitting on our uh, laptops, on our screens, that it was doable to do it. Uh, I think balance is key, to be yeah. honest. I don't think... Uh, uh, I guess the extreme on the remote side can work. The extreme of uh, on in the office side, I don't think it works anymore. It, it looks like a relic and it's a signal of a company that's backwards thinking. But yeah, I'd say hybrid probably the best. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, I agree. Hybrid as well. Um, we're seeing. Uh, I'm see. I'm seeing the uh, the extreme uh, fully remote uh, situation at Nude because uh, we never had an office. We managed to grow that far without it, but in some cases for some project, you know that we would be a lot more efficient. It would just be in a room for like a few days and just crack on on a whiteboard and just get through it uh especially for like uh you know product growth stuff you know like when you you have to align with product and and the, the engineers and stuff um so we do see some limitations uh on that and we're still fast but you know it, it also take a particular um set of uh skills or um um I'm sounding like Liam Neeson now. Uh, to to <laughs> <laughs> to work fully remote, you know, like it takes discipline. If you never go yeah. to an office to get the work done, it takes a lot of discipline. So yeah, I think hybrid is the is the way um, to build the team connection, but also to get some like deeper project work where you you um, you just smash those things. Like, it'll be really hard today to start a company if you take three people who are fully remote and three people who are in the same room all the time to beat them because they will just go yeah. way faster than you. Uh, maybe it applies more to like software development and like things like that. But I think yeah, I think it's pretty much the case for any anything. Maybe some exception. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, yeah, I think the head down work, getting your head down and just like getting through a task, being remote or at home where you don't have those distractions it can be really empowering but yeah when it's a when it's something that requires multiple people feeding in you can't be just getting around the table and hammering it out well we've hit the hour michael we don't want to keep you for too long i'm sure you've probably got some other stuff to do other than talk to us on the podcast today. it was a very enjoyable start of the day and uh, you know it's a the sort of conversation that you could have even without the recording uh, very happy to create content with you guys. Yeah, that was awesome thank you michael yeah Excellent to have you on. Great chat, and we'll speak soon. Thank Peace. You. Cheers. I'm always surprised, like how how deep we can go into, uh, or like the guests can go into a topic, and I'm like, this is awesome. Like, this is just talk for for an hour. How'd you like this, by the way? What's that? Oh, where did you get that? <laughs> Primark. <laughs> yeah, I do like it. That's cool. What is the other bag? Just Barbie. 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 Yeah.